Dear friends and colleagues, uh, my name is Professor Irene Tracy and as head of the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to you here today. These are special occasions in a department's and university's life where we gather to celebrate the success and rightful recognition of one of our own, Dear Martin. I would particularly like to welcome Martin's parents, David and Pamela, his sister Sarah and brother-in-law, plus their son, Martin's nephew Joseph, alongside his wife Sally and Martin's two children, Abigail and Barnaby, who have been promised, I understand, a cool lecture by their dad, so we will see. I see that Barnaby brought a book, which is a very wise move. We have uh, several other very distinguished members of the audience, uh, too, who have travelled to join our celebration and who I know have been key and influential mentors and supporters of Martin throughout his meteoric rise as a clinician scientist. And so a thank you and a very warm welcome to you all. Martin, a mere whippersnapper, was born in 1971 and foolishly, some would say, went to Cambridge to study. Finishing his preclinical school there, he then completed at St George's London his clinical training and was an SHO at the National Hospital Queen Square. Recognising his natural curiosity and academic bent, he then did a PhD in motor neuron disease under Professor Nigel Lee at King's College London, finishing in 2004. Wisely, some would say, he saw the light and came to Oxford, where he completed his specialist training in 2008 while still delivering outstanding research, more of which we will hear about in a moment. So much so that he was successful in winning a highly competitive and prestigious MRC Clinician Scientist Fellowship. And throughout that period, under the fellowship, he was forging his own research area in collaboration with many members here in the audience and under the ever-expert eagle eye and fantastic mentorship and support of Professor Kevin Tolbert. They have together created something really very special in Oxford within this most important area of clinical need. Proof of that is reflected by his being awarded a prestigious MRC Senior Clinical Fellowship in 2013, the European Network for Cure of ALS Investigator Award in 2012, the Royal College of Physicians Graham Bull Prize, and the Gulstonian Lecturer in 2016. Martin has been Chair of the Association of British Neurologists Research and Academic Committee since 2016, and is a Senior Richard Doll Tutorial Fellow at Green Templeton <coughs> College, where he's been teaching medical students there weekly since 2004. At a personal level, I have been delighted and am deeply happy to see Martin's outstanding ability and potential develop and be realised. He has been such an important part of FINRIB's successful development during my tenure there as director, and he has been additionally given tirelessly and unselfishly beyond his science to looking after our incidental findings process and more beyond. This he has done with diligence, intelligence, sensitivity, and I and all my colleagues at Primrib are extremely grateful to you, Martin, for your stewardship. In summary, then, it should come as no wonder that when considering his excellence across the piece from research, teaching, clinical care, good citizenship, the university, without hesitation, has conferred on him the title of full professor. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Professor Martin Turner deliver his inaugural speech, Detecting, Tracking, and Predicting Motor Neuron Disease. Martin. Thank you very much, Irene. Uh, that's uh, really wonderful. Thank you. So, I'm going to talk to you for the next 45 minutes about this disease. And I'm going to show you some pictures of patients. It goes without saying that all of them have agreed to that. And I'm going to start off with quite a powerful uh, image for you. Hi, uh, my name is Patrick. I'm a
So it still astonishes me that there's really only one disease that I know of um, in the whole of neurology that can take somebody from complete normality and, and turn them into uh, a form of shadow of themselves physically. I'm pleased to say that Patrick's still very much uh, his own person and he was very happy to be uh, the opening slide at this talk. And I'm sorry he couldn't be with us. Um, obviously that first video was shot at a time when Patrick was doing a promo for being a tree surgeon. He had no idea uh, what the future held. And this is a condition that uh, is, is both uh, unforgettable in how, how it affects patients, but also provides that key uh, interest, really, in trying to understand what on earth could be going on both at the brain and cell level. Now, Patrick is an incurable optimist and ran a campaign for which he uh, actually got an honour and subsequently a big grant for his wheelchair device. And he, drew, he painted up to um, uh, 20 portraits of various people, including me, if you can spot in the top there and there, second in. What I'm going to talk to you about, uh, I suppose, my uh, interaction with this disease is different aspects of how we tackle any disease. And it's about defining what the disease looks like and its natural history, coming up with ideas that you can test. And actually, the key thing is trying to find ways that you can measure change. Because if you can't measure change, then if you give a drug, you don't know if it's working. And along the way, I've absolutely enjoyed questioning everything, particularly scientific dogma. And I hope having the opportunity to train others, and then importantly, to learn things from them. So we'll start off a little bit with the detection of this disease. There's only one slide with a lot of text on, but I wanted to show this one. And all you need to, to read is the things underlined. If you read this out over the phone, uh, or you read it yourself uh, to, some, uh, to, to yourself, and you saw that it was someone, a case, didn't matter what age it was, that over five months their leg had started to get weak and waste. It was progressive, their armour was affected as well. They had exaggerated knee jerks, and the sensation was completely normal. There's absolutely no doubt, of, of any disease, there's no doubt at all what that is. And that's from 1894. So we, we, end, we see this disease and we know it straight away. There are difficulties at the boundaries, but it's not a condition that is hard to recognise. And it's a disease of this system, this motor system, and that's comprised of a central upper motor neuron component from the brain and these lower motor neurons that plug in into the arms, legs, respiratory areas. And this is a multi-system problem. Early on, the lower motor neuron loss is going to cause muscle twitching. That's a normal thing, so don't panic if, like me, you're a fasciculator. But it's going to lead to progressive weakness and wasting, and that's not normal. It's going to lead to strange patterns. This patient here, a lot of wasting around the shoulders. Here it's a foot drop. Here it's this unusual uh, thumb aspect of the hand that's wasting. It's going to affect speech and swallowing areas in some patients. That may lead to problems with weakness of the tongue, but it may also affect the pathways that allow people to control their emotional responses. <coughs> the so-called corticobulbar pathways. There's going to be a hypermetabolic state for many patients where they have a very accelerated use of calories and weight loss. So a complete change that may even precede the onset of symptoms. We're going to recognise that this disease involves the brain in a much wider sense. And it's going to affect people in a way that might affect their insight and their risk management. And the headline is going to be that this will affect the breathing. And eventually, when everyone's breathing is affected, the median survival from the start of symptoms is going to be 30 months. Half the patients will have 1,000 days from the first symptom. Now, Charcot was the first to describe this, and he called it this uh, sclerosing amyotrophy. And what he was recognising was that in these green lower motor neurons, he would see a loss of the cells in the spinal cord and withering of the nerve roots and muscle wasting, which is called amyotrophy. In the corticospinal tract, the upper motor neuron, he would see this pallor of the corticospinal tract and he called that sclerosis in the lateral parts of the lateral sclerosis. And he recognised that these two things together were extremely unusual. Most nervous system diseases are either in the periphery or in the central nervous system. There's really very, very few that do both. And there is complexity. This is really just to show that back in 1943, people recognised that you'd have people with predominantly, actually these are the wrong way around, predominantly upper motor neuron, just switch these colours around, um, who would be termed primary lateral sclerosis, and people with predominantly muscle wasting, that we would call muscular atrophy. In the middle, you'd have a bit of both, and most patients would be in the middle. As you get out to the sides, the speed of progression would be slower, 
and fasciculations you would see mainly in the middle and towards the more wasting end. So a spectrum of involvement. Patients will come to the clinic and they tell us their symptom came on like that. It's focal, it starts in the speech, it starts in the hand, it starts in the foot. Remarkably focal. Occasionally it will begin in the breathing, very rare, and occasionally it will begin with a dementia, and we'll talk about that a bit later. I suppose with time, and I'll outline why I'm more interested in the brain, I mean, it strikes me that really this is sort of 30% leg, 30% hand, and 30% bulba. So it doesn't really surprise me that it breaks down like that. And in fact, we find that if you're going to have onset in your upper limb, it's going to be more likely to be in your dominant limb, which raises all sorts of issues about the structure of people's brains defining how they degenerate, and I'll come back to that. I'll be talking a bit more about uh, uh, Professor Eisen here, but actually he pointed out this paper, which has nothing to do with motor neuron disease, but it's a paper where the projections from motor nuclei from the brainstem were tracked, and if you track them, it shows that all the pathways are monosynaptic, apart from two, and they're the ones to the eye movements and the bladder. And they're the areas that generally are spared in MND. And so again, coming back to actually what might be a much more simple idea than we realise, that it's not necessarily a problem with the motor neuron uh, biology per se in, in selective vulnerability. It may be just as important how it's wired together. We see that the pattern of spread is not random. If it starts in a leg, it will tend to mostly move to the other leg, across the midline. But some patients, particularly ones with perhaps more upper motor neuron involvement, it will track up to this arm. It won't tend to cross diagonally. It's definitely not a random pattern. And John Ravitz has looked in the spinal cords and shown that the maximum pathology is at the site of the first symptom. What's missing, of course, is the same study in the brain, and that's something that is still to be done. And I think what the, what's happened in the last... Um, 10 years particularly, but really the literature goes back for 100 years, but in the last 10 to 20 years, people have really begun to realise that this condition clinically overlaps with a dementia, and it's called frontotemporal dementia. And so this idea of just a disease of upper and lower motor neurons is not right. It's extending into other parts of the brain. Most patients won't get a dementia, only 5% really. Half the patients will probably not have anything you can detect, but if you look very, very hard in this group, you'll find subtle things, subtle things that are useful in research that tell us about pathways that we wouldn't have necessarily linked to the motor system. What about the molecular signature? Well, that's how we define diseases now. It may be we have to move from that model, but that's currently the gold standard. And I was lucky enough, I'll come back to talking about Nigel Lee and, and Michael Swash, but you know, they had paved the way in discovering these deposits. And all neurodegenerative diseases have their dustbin full of something, and in Alzheimer's we call it beta amyloid, and in Parkinson's we call it synuclein, and I'll come back to what we call it in, in, in MND. But actually, look at the date, 1988, this is way, way before some of the major discoveries. Already we're seeing these deposits um, in the anterior horn cells and also in the brain, and they looked a bit like skeins of wool, hence skein-like inclusions. But this came along in 2006, and this was an absolutely seismic event, because it was defined, this brown stuff here, as TDP43, and it, all you need to know is it's a major um, RNA binding protein. It regulates 6,000 genes. It's extremely important, which may beg the question is, how on earth can that be tolerated for 50 years? And, you know, we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, later on this evening, but we don't know. But it's the molecule that you found in, in motor neuron disease, also known as ALS, and frontotemporal de degeneration. So you find it in two completely different phenotypes. And this is really now at the heart of the molecular story, how this protein gets from here in the nucleus, moves into the cytoplasm, and then is scrunched up here, ready for throwing away. And is that a marker of cell death? Is, it, is that a cell actually doing the right thing? Actually, big questions, just like the Alzheimer's field, that we're struggling with, and we're not, we're not sure you know, what it means, but we know that it's absolutely the signature of this condition, so it's the pathway to go after. But the complexity is getting difficult. I'm in the clinic saying, well, it all looks like MND to me, and I recognise it like that case from 1894. There's no doubt for most cases. But then in the lab, 
Dr. Anzorga and other inclusionologists are saying, well, this is a SOD1 case. This is a case with basophilic inclusions. This is a case with FUS or TDP43 or the C9LRF72. But actually, you could line up these cases and they would look very similar. So do we just split and split and split? Do we lump it all together? These are major challenges that we, we face. And I've come to the conclusion, really, that what's the cause of MND is not the right question, because there's lots of ways that you can upset the motor neuron. And it may be through overstimulating it. It may be through attacking it with inflammation. It may be through lack of transport. These are very long neurons. If I was a cell body, if my body was the cell body now, my foot, if I was a motor neuron, would be out somewhere tickling someone in Banbury. So these are extremely long. All sorts of ways that you can upset the neuron. Now, I think it's traditional. I think Carla started this tradition, but it's traditional to talk a little bit about uh, one's background before I carry on with the science. So I had a lot of dreams as a child. And, you know, I, like most people, I would dream of being cowboy and good at sport. Yes, let's not talk about that outfit. Um, and uh, a scene from The Graduate here. But actually, um, I was always quite interested in science. That's a strange child. Uh, my parents snapped this photograph of me, and this is a magnet which was held, actually didn't quite reach over my head here, but um, under the watchful eye of dinosaur, um, this was designed, I thought it might influence my dream, so early TMS. <laughs> but actually, I was coming at this the wrong way, because if I'd only used that MRI to decode the visual imagery, then I might have got a science paper. <laughs> So medical school uh, was a necessary uh, thing and something I thoroughly enjoyed. This is me doing a bit of portering, good for the CV beforehand. Uh, I did not spell medicine wrong. Someone else filled that in. Um, and, and you do all sorts of mad things when you're uh, a medical student. This is me with my best friend Andy, who's very kindly joined us today. And you go on a lecture and do things like that and then tell your parents afterwards that wasn't supposed to happen, they got the length wrong. Um, and so oh, well, you got a free, uh, free dunking, which uh, that's great, as long as it's not a particularly shallow river as that is. Um, so, um, and there's our exam beers, which were de rigueur at the time. I don't intend to ever throw myself out of an aeroplane again. So back to the science. So I turned up having done some basic training and uh, I was looking for research, and I got a call uh, from Queen's Square. I took advice from uh, registrars, um, Richard Butterworth, Amaral Chalaby at the time, and Matthew Kiernan. And they said, oh, yeah, Nigel, no, you've really, got a great programme. And so I went down, and I remember I spoke to my parents that night. So I said, well, he seems like a nice guy. But he's asking me to study the brain, and I can't find anything to do with the brain in ALS or motor neuron disease. So I took a chance, and I met these characters who've been moderately successful in their own way. Um, I contributed most of the research to, to MND over the years. And I met some great people that I work with. And actually, all of us know when we're doing our PhD, the most important people are the people that you work with who keep you grounded. In my case, uh, stop you leaving because you, you think what you're doing is not going anywhere. Um, and so Vicky uh, and Matt, and I'm very pleased that they came as well. Now, the issue was that there was a dogma at the time. And it was unacceptable to say that ALS was anything, MND, other than a problem that was striking this neuromuscular junction and moving back up into the brain in some cases. And there are still some people that will get very upset if you start saying anything else. But I read this in 1993, and then there was a back-to-back -back or paper in the same journal that this guy, Professor Andrew Eisen, had written. And he said, no, 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 no. In a very mild way, you know, without being dogmatic, he said, well, actually, maybe this is a disease of the system, a corticomotor neuronal system, and outlined a huge range of evidence. And I think it's fair to say that back in 1992, 25 years ago, that wasn't always appreciated or, or, or taken on board. And like all these things, now, when I ask people, they, they go, well, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. 25 years on, absolutely. But at the time, this was quite heretical to say in certain circles. But Nigel was very, very interested in these sorts of ideas and said, study the brain, you're going to do positron emission tomography. Now, that's what sold it to me, because positron emission tomography involves antimatter. And as far as I was concerned, I was going to be inside. At any moment, there could be a massive warp core breach, and I would have to rush in and save that. And I promised my son there'd be some Star Trek references. Um, 
And it's a very, very good way to look at molecular aspects of brain function. And we looked for inflammation in the brain, and we discovered that in the living patient, there was inflammation throughout the brain, so not just in the post-mortem state. And we took rare cases of people who only had symptoms on one side and showed that the inflammation was only on, fortunately, the opposite side to their symptoms. Um, but this was a very, very key uh, uh, change in my view that actually inflammation might not simply be uh, a bystander effect and might have some role and contributory role. And certainly there are trials imminent um, looking at that. I also got interested in the time, um, an idea that the, the, the cortex might be hyperexcitable. And this paper had come out a few years earlier um, from Japan, showing that if you double stimulate with a magnetic coil, if you double stimulate the cortex, the normal suppression that you would see um, at these short interstimulus inter intervals, so a double pulse, the normal suppression you would see would be lost in those with ALS. So their, their cortexes are hyperexcitable, something very, very um, uh, jumpy about their cortex. And with Kerry Mills, he taught me um, how to do the TMS, and Peter Anderson sent over a very rare group of patients, all under the guidance of Nigel. We studied the patients both with what's called sporadic ALS, so non-genetic, and a very rare genetic form who have a very slow disease course, and showed that the people with a slow disease course had preserved inhibition, so the idea that their cortex might be less excitable, which might be why their disease was slower. And we did some PET studies looking at GABA binding, and these are the areas where the GABA binding was lost, so these are the areas without GABA. And they're in motor, sort of pre-motor areas in the sporadic patients, and in these patients who are matched in every other way for all their clinical appearance, but much slower disease, they had preservation in those areas and much more loss frontally. Now, in fact, this idea of cortical hyperexcitability is something that Matthew Kiernan has really made uh, his own, and he's a world leader in this with Steve Butich. And they developed a technique that really has demonstrated that this is absolutely the signature for ALS. You don't see this in um, other motor problems that might look a bit like ALS. And it's an extremely important mechanism, and it suggests that actually it may start a little bit before the onset of symptoms. And Matthew and I have chatted and become good friends over the years, and we're very interested in pursuing whether there might be a role for interneuronal damage, um, loss of inhibition that way. What about tracking MND? Well, that's really what I started doing in Oxford. And all I was aware was that there been a huge number of trials, and none of these trials have worked. And why is that? Well, they rely largely on survival. So you say, here's a drug, we'll give half the patients the drug and half of them placebo, and then we'll see the survival after 18 months. So a lengthy study, it's a very high bar, it misses a lot of granularity in the differences between patients, and it doesn't work. And what's missing is markers. We know that Lou Gehrig had a very typical course, three years. Stephen Hawking has an extremely atypical long course. So there's a big variation. And really, Stephen Hawking is exceptional. Most patients wouldn't get past this sort of area. So 98% of patients really are going to have a life shortened uh, to 10 years. Different patterns. You saw this pattern here earlier. This pattern was drawn by Gowers in the 1800s, and it's very slow. If you have this pattern of involvement, it's a slow process, five to 10 years. If you have involvement in the tongue area, the so-called bulbar region, it's going to be much faster. Why is that? We have no idea. This is a picture from one of my students' uh, studies. He took data from a massive trial and looked at a disability score, and this is how we do trials now. We measure their disability um, over a huge number of patients over time. And this patient here, for example, very, very aggressive disease. This patient here, perhaps, much more benign disease. But they're all in a drug trial. How on earth do you make sense of that? Um, and model that. And this is the limitations of this tool. In my biomarker cohort, these are the trajectories, obviously rather fewer patients, but different trajectories. But the, the rate of change of those trajectories is the same for each individual, roughly. So if you have a slow disease, it stays slow. That's telling us something very, very important about how this disease interacts with a person, their anatomy, perhaps. It's not a new idea. There's no new ideas at all. And Gower's spotted this many, many years ago, saying when it begins slowly, it's usually slow throughout. And that brings me on, really, to another wonderful thing that's, that I've been able to do through collaboration and, and, and colleagues. So Nigel 
bought me Kinnear Wilson's textbook, which is the best textbook of neurology ever. And actually, Michael Swash and I have gone through many hours chatting about Gowers. And Andrew Eisen has really <coughs> indulged my interest in historical literature. And we've learned, I've certainly learned a huge amount, really, from looking at old papers. And it's been really wonderful uh, to uh, have a, a, a correspondence and friendship with Alistair, who I used to read his brain from the archives, and this is a particularly memorable MND um, case. And more recently, we've been uh, meeting to discuss aspects of history of neurology, and I found that extremely interesting, but also really informative for my work. So what do we want biomarkers for? Well, we want to get people into trials sooner, but I'm not so worried about not being able to make the diagnosis correctly, because there's lots of reasons people come to the clinic late. But we would like to get people with less typical cases into the study. We definitely want to stratify people in a more um, objective way, so that we can say, your track is fast or slow, you're likely to have these problems, and so we can make sure we're not missing an effect in a subgroup. We definitely want to be able to stop a trial faster than having to wait 18 months and see who's alive, and that's called a no-go decision, and we want to find mechanisms along the way. So I set up this study for biomarkers. It would be a nice idea, really, that you could just look at a scan and see it was ALS, but that's just not the case. We have to set up often very disabled patients in the scanner. This patient has no use of their arms. There were some patients who had lost use of their legs. And we drew the line that they had to be able to wiggle a toe so that we would know if there was a problem during the scan. So a major challenge I hadn't thought of, we're going to shut the door here, that person's going to be on their own in the scanner. And we have to know if they can't speak or move their arm or press a button. We have to know if there's a problem. And we have to then persuade them, although many people didn't need much persuading, that we'd like to take spinal fluid from them. It's a big ask. We wouldn't do it if it was dangerous, but it's not an easy thing to ask someone to do, and particularly to ask them to do it every six months. But many patients, in fact, I really can count on one hand the number of patients who did not want to take part because they weren't interested. Lots of people were too disabled to, but we've got many patients, and they had this MRI scanning, eye tracking, and blood and spinal fluid. Now, one of the great things about Oxford, a huge attraction for coming here, and, um, uh, was this amazing unit that FIMRIT, that our head of department now, Irene here with her typical trademark cocktail. Actually, that's the only, <laughs> it's the only time I've seen you with a cocktail. Um, and now, more recently, Heidi Johansson-Berg. Um, and this, this wealth of amazing analysis, talent, and expertise. People um, who come from engineering, mathematics, physics backgrounds, um, and allow... Uh, clinicians to bring cases to study um, and try and understand disease as well as uh, the healthy state. And what MRI has allowed us to do is much more than the picture. This title was originally, it's not about the picture, stupid, um, but the point is it's not just about the picture. It's about so much more. There's data on microstructure we get from something called diffusion tensor imaging and more recently um, data on function. And it's all non-invasive and it can all be acquired uh, in something like 30 to 60 minutes. So we started out, Nico Filippini um, helped me take some patients, and we showed that this area, this corpus callosum area, and the descending tracts were the key signature. And that would show up, and these are living patients. And it married up to what Marion Smith had shown 60 years earlier in post-mortem studies. She'd drawn, through, drawn along brain slices where the tracts were damaged. But this is a living person, and we're able to plot the damage over time in a living person. Ricarda, um, who's uh, our team's uh, senior postdoctoral scientist in imaging, went further and looked at whether there were particular areas, a particular sweet spot in the posterior limb of the internal capsule that seems to reflect disease activity, probably because it's really a very, very uncrossed section and actually its um, properties greatly reflect the disease process and could be uh, a key marker. <coughs> And we've been able to scale this up more recently. I started a group gathering scientists initially in Oxford, um, and we've met every year since, to try and gather large numbers of scans. It's 250 scans of patients, 119 controls. Put them all together, and that's very difficult. That's like a massive deck of cards that are all jumbled up, and you have to try and line them all up and analyse them. But when you do that, you start to see that it's at least feasible that we could use large groups of patients in a clinical trial and look at these measures across groups. Gwen, who's now an independent uh, PI at FIMRIB, she was able to help me integrate the structure and the function. So 
These were the areas in red here that we saw the, the loss of structure in the brain, and these blue areas are the areas where we saw a change in function, and we saw an increase in the function. And that seemed very, very unexpected because we thought that you'd lose function as time went on. And it perhaps suggested that this was a hyperactive, hyperexcitable cortex. And she asked me if she could have the, uh, the data from my PET scans to, to put alongside, even though this was uh, at least five years before. And it was a real revelation to see that the areas that we'd seen the loss of GABA were not dissimilar to where we were seeing the areas of so-called increased connectivity. So more idea that perhaps this was a highly active brain. And that when you linked up several markers, you were able to separate the patients in red from the, the controls in green much more than if you used one. I think one of the key things was to look longitudinally because cross-sectional studies were giving us mixed answers. And we discovered that when you looked just at a group of patients versus controls, you saw lots of white matter damage, really very extensive, even in people with very limited clinical involvement. So a brain absolutely trashed by the time people have symptoms. But longitudinally, what you saw was not so much a change here, but you started to see much more brain matter involvement, including in areas you wouldn't normally have thought of, like the thalamus. What we're moving on to now, through collaboration with scientists like Carla Miller at FIMRID, is starting to say, well, here are the MRI changes. Here are the changes under the microscope post-mortem. What do the two link to? What does that change on the MRI scan mean in terms of the tissue? And so we, through donations from patients, were able to take post-mortem brain and put it into the scanner, scan it for 48 hours, get the most amazing detail through the development of sequences uh, from physicists like Carla, and then Olaf can help marry that up to the tissue. And that's going to be a very important way that we can then go, we can be confident that what we're seeing on the MRI scanner is reflecting what's happening in the tissue. At one point, we used eye tracking to try and get a window on the brain. The eye movements are normal. I said they, they move quite normally. They're not um, held by the motor neuron damage. But the eye movements and the way you move them, particularly if I ask you to look away from something, is a massive influence of your cortex, your function of your brain. And Chris Kennard had a big track record in uh, eye movement work and came to be head of department and very graciously collaborated with his uh, postdoc, Steve Hicks, who's gone on to great things with the Google Glasses. And Rakesh Sharma was a student at the time, and then Malcolm analysed a lot of the data. And we found these really interesting things that the patients would... Um, this is a healthy person fixating on the various things on the screen. This is a test called the trail-making test. But the... ALS patient, the M&D patient, really struggling to fixate in a way that we would never have spotted just looking at the eyes. If we ask the people to track between the areas on the screen, the healthy control does it quite well. ALS patients all over the place. So subtle changes that we're using eye movements, we could do that in the clinic, just a portable eye tracker, um, ways that we could perhaps use diagnostically, but also as markers. So what about the wet side? Well, blood and spinal fluid. What we've been able to move forward, it certainly wasn't our discovery, but was that neurofilaments are the breakdown products of axons. And they were known to be raised in a number of brain disorders. And in collaboration with uh, Queen Mary's University of London, we were able to show that in our large cohort of patients, they were much more raised in the patients than the healthy people, a little bit less separation in blood, but certainly a, a reasonable starting point. That was all known, but the key thing was that nobody had serial CSF. And if you looked cross-sectionally in, in disease duration, you saw that the level of neurofilaments was falling. But it was actually giving you the wrong message, because what you were seeing was the people that you were doing cross-sectionally later had a more benign disease, which is why they came back to their fifth sampling. And it was only when you took an individual and followed them individually over time, you saw that their level, if it was high, stayed high, medium, and low, and that was strongly linked to survival. So we have a marker that's not really diagnostic, that's not its strength. Its strength is that if you can reduce that level with a drug in a group, then it may reflect a disease modification, changing the rate. And we think that, that those neurofilaments are predominantly from these large uh, corticospinal tracts. <coughs> So the big picture for the biomarkers is really the integration, and that's not trivial, uh, but these are sorts of aspects that you'll hear more and more about in the press, things like machine learning, uh, big data. Um, you know, it's absolutely what you put in that's important, uh, and absolutely uh, that you talk to the right people 
who tell you how to interpret what comes out. Um, but the idea is that we'll link up a lot of these markers, all the different types and, and things that look like MND that aren't, and different markers and measures. So predicting MND, the last of the three things. So this is who gets it and when. I mean, can anyone get MND? I don't know. I think probably they can. And Osler was very interested in the type of person that gets the disease rather than the disease itself. He was also at Green Templeton, where I've been teaching for many years under the great friendship and uh, collaboration with the local GP, Lawrence Lever, who was a student here, and uh, our senior tutor, Chris Sauer, has been very, very supportive. And Osler was just around the corner at Norham Gardens, if you want to go and have a look. We know it's a disease of ageing. All neurodegenerative diseases are, but we have seen cases in our clinic in the teens, and that gives us a different message. But largely, this is a disease of ageing. We think, or I think, that patients are often very fit. With the advent of electronic patient records, this really won't stand much longer. But it strikes us in our clinic, and of course it's not a controlled experiment, but the patients tell us they've never seen a doctor before, they've always been very well. I don't know if that's real or I'm just biased, but actually it really strikes me. I've seen enough general patients, it feels as though that's something important. And the question is, is it somebody who really shouldn't be a mammal, shouldn't get to 40 and start wearing lycra and going out on their bike, and they somehow damage themselves? I don't know. I think that's possible. Is it, like Lou Gehrig here, um, is it that they're wired in a way that makes it easier for them to do sport? So it just happens that they do sport. It's just what they do. It's not caused it. And that sort of feels like a bit more like what might, what might be going on. We know that MND patients seem to do more physical activity, but those studies aren't always positive, just most of them are. They're fraught with difficulties, they're questionnaire-based, full of bias. And it was wonderful to meet Michael Goldacre, an epidemiologist, who really indulged my interest in epidemiology and helped me test a number of ideas in a large hospital record database. We found that cardiovascular fitness is definitely part of the, um, the, the co-risk factor, and in fact that's just been extended to the parents of patients. Tissue injury earlier in life seems to be a signal, and autoimmune diseases, but they're very small signals. They're not simply cause and uh, uh, an effect, it's an association. Occupations probably are reflecting athleticism rather than the fact that it might be pesticides or the lines on the pitch or the lines being sniffed up the nose or military service. But they're signals, and I think they're probably reflecting athleticism. And there are metabolic changes in lower BMI. People worry about head injury. This is Lou Gehrig here, got hit in the head with a, with a baseball. But actually, we had a very strong result that head injury, severe enough to put you in hospital and trauma, was not a simple cause of, of, of MND. But it certainly could be one of, um, one of a small factor. Along the way, there have been some big ideas which have really got my mind thinking. So Bill Seeley on the West Coast, very interested in frontotemporal dementia. I met him at a meeting... Um, and, you know, this is a massive idea. This is the sense that these are different diseases here, Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia, semantic dementia, non-fluent aphasia, and corticobasal syndrome. What he's showing here is that the damage that you see in those diseases in the brain, the structure and functional damage, looks quite similar to normal patterns of how you're wired up as a healthy person. And I think this idea of what wires together dies together, that your architecture may not necessarily reflect your vulnerability to generation, but will certainly define how it degenerates, I think this is a really massive idea that certainly lots of people are working on at FIMRIB through the Human Connectome Project. And again, it's been really lovely to work with um, Andrea Eisen and Roger Lemon, you know, giants of uh, motor function who've indulged um, my interest, certainly allowed me to be involved in thinking in the bigger picture, really, about human evolution. This thumb here really has evolved in a cortical way. And so it's not surprising that we see the thumb being particularly involved in, in MND. And we see this pattern of mainly thumb wasting, the sparing of this side. And this is Lou Gehrig's hand here that we spotted when we went to the Yankee Stadium. So here's the symptom onset. Here's the diagnosis. And we pour the drugs in here. And unfortunately, this is the cumulative survival. But what's going on here? This is where we would like to put the drugs in. And the only way I can spot somebody who's at risk of MND 
and not at 100% risk, but, but certainly higher risk, is people who are carrying a gene. And there's only really 5 to 10% of people who are carrying a gene, which makes it very highly likely that if they live long enough, they'll get MND. That's our window, and it allows us to look at this area here. What is going on here? What's happening at the cell level? Well, actually, in some limited case reports, it seems there's a lot happening at the cell level, even at a very early age, but for some reason you're tolerating that. So actually the molecular markers, I'll come back to, may not be our sole uh, target, really, to look at the preclinical phase. We might have to think a bit more widely. This is the genetic landscape. Most people don't have a gene causing their MND. Most people, we don't know what causes it. But we find this particular gene, which was discovered in 2011, and it's particularly unusual because you have that gene, you can get one of two diseases. You can either get MND or you can get frontotemporal dementia or you can get both. But what defines that? Is that random? Is that which bit of the brain you hit first and happens to be wired up to the next bit? Possibly. What we've done is take a group of gene carriers and start to look at the function of the brain. These particular markers aren't, aren't the key thing to look at. But what we're looking at is active activity in the brain across different networks. And the healthy people are in green here, and the affected patients are in red. Pretty good separation between them. And then here's the gene carriers, sprinkled in between the two. So early idea that actually brain function may not be quite normal. And if we're going to intervene and neuroprotect patients, that's what we're going to have to show. And Malcolm, here again, has been doing some very difficult work with magnetoencephalography. 320 um, leads stuck on your head, recording minute changes. So sensitive that if you were open the door, the whole recording's gone. It could, a pin dropping in the room would be enough to wreck the recording. So highly sensitive way of measuring brain function. And we've been really, really grateful to work with Kia Nobre, who runs the Oxford Centre for Human Brain Activity. And in the MND group, this unexpected bilateral hemispheric activation, when you only move one hand, it should only be the opposite side of your brain, it shouldn't be both. But we think it's the damage through the centre. And in a small group of what are called asymptomatic gene carriers, healthy people who are carrying a gene, an early signal, it may not be strong enough, but an early signal that, that everything's not normal. So, some future directions then, and a few thanks, and then uh, it's uh, quickly to alcohol. <laughs> so, future directions. Well, I'm very interested in the very small as well as the very big, but it's not my area of expertise, and so I've gathered colleagues who are willing to indulge and help, and Matthew Wood and Benedict Kessler are experts in helping us isolate vesicles and then look at the contents. And these are the tiniest little packages inside cells which talk to other cells, when the cell dies, they spill their contents and may well be one mechanism whereby disease is spread to the next neuron. That's a possibility, not clear. But we think that what's going on here is important in the disease. So we've come up with a way to isolate them. They're very, very, very small. The sort of centrifuge uh, forces you need are things like 300,000 G you have to spin the sample at, like a mini black hole in the lab, uh, to get these uh, things out. And George DeFaris, one of my colleagues, um, has done this in Parkinson's, uh, and it seems to be a very exciting way to find markers related to disease at the cellular level. And we've recruited Emily Fenneberg from uh, the German powerhouse in Ulm, and she's come over to do a PhD, really trying to understand why it's so difficult to measure this key molecule. Because that would be the obvious target, TDP43. Why can't we measure it? Well, it turns out it's probably in all sorts of different forms, it's probably bound in the tissues in certain forms. And actually, its, it's interactome, what it, it interacts with, may be as important or more important, and that's what Emily's working on. And Ahmed here, we've got him in, neurophysiologist for the first time, and Charlie Stagg, who's an independent PI here, who grew up with Heidi Johansson-Berg, to start to think about how you modulate the brain. So this is my idea, really, that... I don't think simply molecular targets will necessarily give us the information we're going to need, certainly if we want to protect people who don't have symptoms yet. We have to find things that are suggesting at the systems level within the brain that the activity is changing. And then if we give a drug and you're a protective, we can't wait 30 years and see if someone develops MND. We have to see 
if we're changing something at the system level. And so that's what we're going to try and get into, ways to modulate the brain and then read from it using imaging and uh, MEG. So, lots of shoulders that I've clambered on, hopefully not too roughly, but uh, just to finish up, I just want to say thank you to a few people. So, nothing happens in research unless you're offering good care, and care is at the heart of everything. And Imagine if you worked in a team where the person who runs the clinic is a specialist nurse who becomes one of your best friends and is wise, looks after your mental health um, and is loved by every patient that she sees, along with her occupational therapy colleague, Jenny Rolfe. And imagine if we had a team of helpers, Leslie, uh, Jan, uh, Penny and um, Annie, who come along and marshal the patients around every clinic um, through voluntary work. And this is the wonderful clinic that Kevin and Rachel built, um, and all the research springs from there. Underneath the hood in Biomox, we've got Liz working as a postdoc running the wet side of things in the lab and Ricarda on the MRI side. And recently, well actually it's not that recent, Lynn's been with us for over a year now, has transformed the organisation of the clinic and has rapidly got herself into a position where she's not allowed to leave um, and is research coordinating everything that we do. And it's really been a wonderful way that we've seen things expand. Kevin uh, and I have had so many different memories over the years, and I've just put a few of the uh, quality moments from various meetings over the years. I wouldn't be here today if Kevin hadn't broken me out of this, this toilet here. <laughs> so we were bussed up to northern Sweden um, to a very nice cocktail party, and then they kept saying, do not miss the bus home. It, no one comes back here in northern Sweden for, for months. And I quickly went to pay a visit, and I got locked in. The, the lock came off in my hand, and I was sort of banging on the door like this. And I had to ring Kevin on, on, my, on his mobile phone and, and uh, wake him up. It was late at night. Um, and wake him up, and he got the bus to come back and pick me up. But one of the highlights of the Orlando meeting was going and meeting this astronaut here, who actually flew Challenger, obviously, before 1988, uh, and uh, downing street visits uh, and various other quality moments. You make great friendships along the way, and it's a really wonderful thing um, that you don't imagine when you meet people as a junior doctor. Here I am, just here, one leg perched on the side here at a sort of Queen Square, I think, leaving do for someone. And there, lurking in the background, in his casual shirt, Matthew Kinn. And 15 years later, there we are outside the Packets uh, pub in Cardiff. Um, and, you know, I, I want you to feel sorry for Matthew. He works in a very difficult part of the world. <laughs> when I arrived in Sydney, Matthew said, oh, you know, have you booked into your hotel? Yes. Meet me down on the quayside. And he turns up in his, in his mate's boat and we just, you know, it's, uh, it's terrible. And then uh, let's go out for dinner, and halfway through the dinner, the fireworks start. Um, and Matthew is editor of this very, very quality, high-impact journal, which I urge you all to submit to, and has been very generous in involving me more uh, with commissioning in that journal, and uh, I really value having his friendship. And uh, he's flown all the way over here today. The MND Association funded everything that I've done over the years, and... Brian and Kirsten at the time, and subsequently Sally, the chief executive, partnered up um, before I started with Sir Colin Blakemore at the MRC and said, look, why don't we partner up as a charity and we'll put some money in the pot, um, but we get the rigour of your selection process and the badging. And it was really revolutionary. And, and you know, there was a certain amount of resistance, not from Colin, um, but uh, that was a very pivotal uh, partnership. And certainly I've greatly benefited from that scheme. There's been a lot of nature and nurture in the family. Here's uh, my father um, working on something important in 1961. I don't know what it was, but it looks like time travel to me. <laughs> and there's my mother in the laboratory at the Royal Victoria Infirmary. So lots of science going on. Uh, this is my grandfather, who, the best thing is that's how you dress when you're a signal engineer. That's how you go to work every day in your three-piece and hat. And actually, when I was a kid, we would sit on the train as we were going up to Scotland um, and we would count the mile markers and he'd say, right, time it. And he'd show me how you could work out how fast the train was going. And then when we got home, he'd take apart my radio, even if it wasn't broken, and put it back together. Now, the interesting thing is that I look a little bit sceptical about what's going on here. This is my sister, Sarah, and 
she would frequently dress me up here and, uh, and I would just sort of accept this as normal behaviour. And then you have your own children. And you see that the same things are happening. <laughs> exactly the same things. And you can dress your child up as a homunculus. And they're quite happy to do that. Um, and it's not till they get older they start questioning that kind of thing. And I promised one cool transition for Abigail and one reference to Star Trek for Barnaby. So the cool transition coming up. There we go. So this is Sally, um, frozen, eyelashes and hair on our trip to, to skiing. And, and all I'll say is that Nothing too cheesy, but, you know, research is an extremely selfish occupation. You know, if I wasn't interested in this disease at a, an intellectual level, as well as my compassion for patients, you're not going to get anywhere. But that comes at a price, and Sally has her own career and has never questioned us moving around. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that often goes unsaid. So, what are my aspirations as a clinician scientist? So, well, respect the chair, uh, curiosity and leadership, scientific rigour, fused with compassion as a physician. And actually, the more we've started watching Star Trek again, I'm forcing my children to watch it, the more I see it's the ultimate, it's how I want the department to be, actually. It's a fantastic melting pot of, uh, of skills uh, and ideas. So to finish off, this is a 150 million mile selfie. Someone conceive that you could put a one-ton machine and fire it off 150 million miles targeted. You can't just aim and, and release. It has to alter course and then land it. You have to slow it down. That's the big problem. And then get it to take a selfie. Now, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's Donald Trump's back garden. It's all a conspiracy. <laughs> Fake news. But, um, but, you know, that is absolutely extraordinary. And if that's possible, then it really does strike me that MND is not impossible. And I, I'm heartened by the fact that we have the next generation. So these are my PhD students, uh, the current ones and past ones, and various students. Jakob's now doing a PhD with Kevin. Various students who have engaged with MND as medical students. And I hope for some of them they've been you know, bitten by the interest in this shocking and awful disease uh, which is so memorable. And my last slide, a lot of people ask me why we do this. Why on earth would you choose MND? Lots of neurologists ask me that. And I think I would speak for the six or seven uh, uh, consultants and various academics who are in the room who've worked with MND, and I'll let JFK tell you why we do this. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Thank you.